We have very few spaces in our lives that encourage us to ask big questions about how do we fit in the universe? What, what is our purpose as living beings? How do we interact with whether you want to call it the divine or just the workings of the cosmos? How do we relate to one another? How do we create a life that is meaningful for ourselves? There are very few spaces in our culture that encourage us to ask those questions. Most of our culture for, tries to funnel us more towards how do I buy more? How do I increase my status? How do I do all of those things that supposedly make me a good 21st century American? The, one of the, two of the few spaces that encourage us and, and provide spaces for those bigger questions are horror and religion. Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather. And in this episode, I'm joined by author and scholar Brandon Grafius to discuss his book, Lurking Under the Surface, Horror, Religion, and the Questions That Haunt Us. Brandon discusses the intersection of horror and religion through the themes of faith, sacred space, the other, and the fear of God, as it appears in films like Wes Craven's New Nightmare, The Hills Have Eyes, The Witch, The Lighthouse, Midnight Mass, and of course, The Exorcist. Also, please be sure to give this podcast a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. That really does help the podcast grow. Brandon Grafius is Associate Professor of Biblical Studies at the Ecumenical Theological Seminary in Detroit. In addition to his teaching, he is a noted scholar, author, and speaker. As an author and academic, Brandon is known for his expertise in the fields of both Bible and horror. He is one of the few, if not the only, member of both the Society of Biblical Literature and the Horror Writers Association. Brandon completed his undergraduate degree in English at Michigan State University, then continued on to an MA in English with a concentration in creative writing at the University of California, Davis. After earning his first graduate degree, Brandon took a few years away from academia, returning in 2006 to pursue his Master's of Divinity at the Ecumenical Theological Seminary. He earned his PhD from Chicago Theological Seminary. A revised version of his dissertation has been published as Reading Phineas, Watching Slashers, Horror Theory, and Numbers 25. He is also the author of the 2019 publication, Reading the Bible with Horror, and his latest book to be released in October of 2022 is Lurking Beneath the Surface, Horror, Religion, and the Questions that Haunt Us. Brandon, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Oh, thank you so much for having me on, Nick. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, me too. And I was really happy to find your book, Lurking Beneath the Surface. And I really want to read some of your other work now too. Glad to hear it. Before hitting record, I mentioned that, you know, I've been a fan of horror since I was a kid, though I have to admit, I definitely lost my taste for gore when I was younger. I loved it. Now I'm like, nope, nope, I don't want that. But horror is still one of my favorite genres, especially in literature, you know, and but I also have a passion for religious studies. And uh, that developed a little bit later, although my aunt tells me I've always been on a spiritual quest. So anyway, I really appreciated your book, Working Beneath the Surface. You know, I I think it hit all the sweet spots. (laughs) Yeah. 
So I thought before we dig into the book, I wanted to ask you if you could say a little bit about your interest in horror. When did it begin? Yeah. I'm like you, I've been a lifelong horror fan, you know, in, in lurking under the surface, I talk some about how it goes all the way back to my Scooby-Doo days as a three or four year old. And from there, I think the, the first movie that really sticks in my mind is something wicked this way comes the Disney adaptation of the Ray Bradbury novel, which is maybe a little darker than it should have been for the, the audience it was intended for. But if I'm honest, those are the, the works that speak most to me, the ones that are maybe a little darker than they should be. So I've, I've always developed that, that passion through my life. For a long time, they were kind of separate tracks, separate strands. I had my, my academic work that was either in, in poetry in the earlier part of my, my academic studies or then moving towards, towards religion, um, and then watched a lot of movies on the side. It wasn't until I was in the, the PhD program at Chicago Theological Seminary where I began to realize that there were some people who were doing work bringing these things together. At the, the time, it was a really small group. And I think now, 12, 15 years later, it's a little bit larger. Mm. There are at least, you know, sessions in the society or in the American Academy of Religion that are on monster theory. The society of Biblical Literature has a Bible and film section that does stuff with horror pretty frequently. So there are there are other people doing work like this, but it's still kind of a field that is a little bit new and a little bit growing. And we're still, I think, figuring out all the, the possibilities of it. Oh, wonderful. Well, speaking of the American Academy of Religion, just out of curiosity, I have been toying with the idea of going to their annual meeting in Denver this year. Yeah. Do you know if there will be a session on anything? Um, like I'm pretty sure there will be one from AAR that's on on Monsters. I'm a little bit, I'm more plugged into the, the Bible side of things. Oh, you know, right, the right, the right. meetings are joint between AAR right. and, and SBL. Right, right. And I'll be chairing a session on Bible and film that will have some oh. horror stuff. We'd kind of hope there would be a whole horror panel, but there weren't quite enough oh, for that. So Okay. All right. So you do get some horror in the, the Bible. And yeah. Film yeah. 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 Well, it's interesting because when I was I guess it was when I was doing my master's degree at the University of Denver. One of the courses I took was Jesus on the silver screen. And so I know the value of what, you know, connecting film to the study of religion and the Bible. And one of the things that was running through my mind reading the book was that Gibson's Passion of the Christ, I think, I never watched it. And the reason is because I have lost my taste for gore. And yeah, um, and it's, uh, it's gory. And beyond that, there are, there are, there are musical cues. There's, there's framing, there's lighting that really screams horror movie. Yeah. yeah. I really, I really think it it is structured like a horror movie. Hmm. Yeah. It's the little I know about it. That was one of the things that came into my mind was that it was body horror. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I know that there's a, or at least my understanding is, is there's a tradition in some of the, the mystical tradition, some in Catholicism of really focusing on sort of that pain and suffering and that sort of bloody imagery. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that mystical tradition was a lot of what Gibson was drawing on from the Passion right. of the Christ. And I wonder if that's also part of what speaks to so many people about it, that we we are really really fascinated with the vulnerabilities of our own bodies and then reflecting on how that that can connect with the vulnerability of Jesus's body. Right. 
opens up a whole bunch of spaces for questions and ideas that maybe we're not fully aware of when we're watching the passion of the Christ, but I think are, are kind of simmering around in there. Yeah, 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 for sure. And I, I, I think we're starting to get a little bit ahead of ourselves. So let me back up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, sounds um, good. So one of the things that I loved about your book is that you explore horror and religion in ways that I don't think are usually considered. You know, I think the issue of good versus evil is sure. recognizable to just about everyone, but you also explore different topics. And you sort of asked this as a question, but I'm going to read it as a statement ah, okay. uh, that you wrote that horror movies help us make sense of the world in a way that scratches the same itch as religion. Yeah. And so I wanted to ask you, how so? Well, I, I think we have very few spaces in our lives that encourage us to ask big questions about how do we fit in the universe? What what is our purpose as living beings? How do we interact with, whether you want to call it the divine or just the workings of the cosmos? How do we relate to one another? How do we create a life that is meaningful for ourselves? There are very few spaces in our culture that encourage us to ask those questions. Most of our culture for, tries to funnel us more towards how do I buy more? How do I increase my status? How do I do all of those things that supposedly make me a good 21st century American? Mm. The, one of the, two of the few spaces that encourage us and, and provide spaces for those bigger questions are horror and religion. They come at them from very different ways, but they are both centered on those ideas of who are we as people? How do we relate to whatever it is that governs this universe? What is the meaning of everything here? Horror and religion both do that and encourage us as participants to engage with those questions. Hmm. Yeah, and so some of the topics that you address in the book along those lines are, you know, like hope and fairness and justice and like you just said yeah. you know our place in the universe what it means to be human and you also note you know one of the chapters is about i think looking put it that way yeah. that you say we can't look away that we can't look away from the horror why is that i think yeah, it's such a provocative question because the, the answer to it lies on multiple levels. Mm -hmm. The first reason we can't look away from, from the horror is because it really is part of life and part of our existence. And so when I say we can't look away, I guess we really, we could, but in order to look away, you have to ignore so much of what's going on around you. Mm -hmm. And I, I think if we look away, we become less than fully engaged with the world. And I don't mean by that that everybody has to love horror movies. There are, of course, different ways of, of looking at the horror, different ways of exploring what is less than sunshiny and happy about our world and our existences. But I, I do think in order for us to fully engage with everything it means to be human and to live in this world, we have to find some way of thinking through those aspects that are less than happy. So that's, that's one reason that we can't look away. I think the other reason that we can't look away 
is that there is some kind of, you might want to call it the magnetic impulse towards those, those kinds of, of topics and those kinds of ideas that we're drawn to trying to figure out why those things exist in the world and how, how those contradictions of a world that's full of so much happiness and warmth and grace, how that also exists side by side with some really ugly truths and realities and behaviors. And all of that is not just addressed in horror movies or horror literature, but it's also there in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, <laughs> especially the Old Testament. But then we also remember that the New Testament, I mean, as we mentioned, the, the Passion of the Christ sure is a great horror movie in some ways that yeah. isn't unfaithful to the biblical text. Right. And then the New Testament ends with the monster show of the book of Revelation. Yeah. Yeah. So, but to, to get back to your point, I, I do believe that part of what we see within the, the Bible is that the, the biblical writers, the people who compiled this, were driven to try to encompass as much of our experience as humans, as much of our relationship with the divine as they possibly could. Yeah. So we, we have a, a gamut of beautiful things, of ugly things. Right. Yeah. And, you know, the... the the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, there are some problematic aspects of it. There's horror in that as well. And Absolutely. one of the things that I was thinking about here is that sometimes I think there's this tendency to want to look away. Yeah. And that what horror does is it reminds us that, no, sometimes we have to look. And it seems to me that that's something that we also have to do in terms of the biblical text is that we need to look at these problematic aspects of it. I think you're absolutely right. Too often we we keep our, our faith in kind of a Sunday school level where we, yeah. we think the Bible is always good and uplifting and edifying. You know, our, our the lectionary that so many of our churches use every week aids and abets that by cutting out the most of the ugly passages. And then our churches are complicit in that those passages are hard to talk about. So often we, we ignore them. But then when we as, as individual believers run across these passages, when we hear them discussed, we don't know what to do with them. We don't have any resources for how to incorporate them in what we understand the Bible to be because we think the Bible is nothing but a book of instructions or uplifting morals. So when, there, when we see God behaving violently, when we see people behaving violently towards each other, we don't have any framework to put that in because we haven't talked about them, because we have looked away. Hmm. And I think furthermore, when our experience of life is not is less than ideal. When we run into those challenging places, when we run into the dark corners of our own existence, often the only theological response we can think is, well, this must be God turning away from us, or somehow we're being punished. Neither of those are, are good theological responses to challenges. Right. But if we haven't thought through the horror of the Bible yet, often those are the two responses we can be left with. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, and personally, I kind of have a, I always refer to it as a Gnostic turpitude. So mm -hmm. sometimes I see God as rather monstrous. And that's something I do want to talk about because that is something that comes up in the text and in some yeah. of the films. But I thought that first, since you mentioned this, I would like to take a deeper dive into this question of faith. Yeah. 
And we should probably warn the viewers and listeners that there will likely be some spoilers here for some of the films that we're going to talk about. I'll try to keep away from them, but yeah, it's hard to talk about movies without giving at least some major things away. Yeah. Well, but but some of these, I think, and some of the ones that you write about, they're so well established that, you know, spoilers should not be an issue right now. Yeah. If you haven't seen The Sixth Sense by now, I I kind of feel like that's on you. Exactly. Exactly. If you haven't seen The Exorcist, it's, you know, you've had plenty of opportunities. At some point, Um, the statute of limitations runs out on spoilers. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So you wrote that faith and fear are more closely connected than they appear. What do you mean by that? That's that's another one of those statements that I think has a lot of unpacking to do and could move in, in many different ways. The first thing is that we we believe in things that we don't know. This is often faith is is connected with with the things that we we don't know, we aren't certain of, we maybe haven't seen. And fear is the same way that that fear moves in those areas of of things that we we don't know, that we are uncertain about, that we are we don't quite know how to process intellectually. Mm. So I think both fear and faith are would you call them affects almost? Responses that that somehow escape the intellect or can't be contained by our rational minds completely. They have that kind of, kind of shared lineage almost. But then I also think of how frequently in the Bible, the idea of the fear of God is connected mm-hmm. with faith. In so many of the, the texts, that's almost the definition of faith is fear of God. Mm-hmm. And I think we try to, to soften that, try to explain it away to say, well, by, by fear, they really meant something like awe or respect. And while I think that's there, it's, they also meant fear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I tell a story in the book about working with a, a bandit church where we were playing DeLorean's song, The Search, which is based on Job 28. And they, the band was really, really getting into the song, really liking it. But at the, the end, it ends with the conclusion of Job 28, which is wisdom can be found in the fear of the Lord. And, you know, that made, made people feel a little squeamish. Well, can we maybe change that to love of the Lord? That seems more wise than fear of the Lord, right? And so we, we spent some time talking about it. We went back to the text and we finally decided, no, it probably is best as fear. That's what the, what the text says. I think fear is something that is a rational response to something that we don't know. And right. faith is also that response. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. And so there's so many things I want to say in response (laughs) to all of this. I think that what I'm going to try to do is I want to come back to this idea of fear of God. Yeah. But first let's linger on faith a little bit. When you were speaking, the thing that kind of came to mind was also Kierkegaard's work, fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. Yep. You know, that this idea that faith and fear are somehow connected does have a bit of a pedigree behind it. Sure does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we could talk more about Rudolf Otto, perhaps. When we sure. Come to yeah. It. Um, yeah. yeah. We'll yeah. bring that back up when we get to the fear of God aspect. Uh, and is. the two are connected. They are deeply yeah. connected. So I think that one of the things that, how do I want to word this? There is a tendency I think of people to identify faith simply as a belief system. 
And that's how they think about religion. And that's one of the very first things that I always try to disabuse my students of is that religion is not just about belief. And and so by a belief system, you even mean like what propositional statements you can consent to. Right, right. Check a box. Yes, I agree with this. Yes, I agree with this. Yeah. Yes, right. Uh, As you put it, you know, doctrinal conformity and that, that, that we see faith as that. But faith is more than that. It's not just about believing the right things. It's not just about orthodoxy. Faith is what? I I always come back to faith as being a basic attitude of trust in the universe. Sometimes even when the evidence around you says that's maybe not the smart bet to place your chips on right. that that faith is is about trust and it's it's about this attitude that indicates that or that that helps you have the confidence to know that this matters that might be my my single statement of faith if, as i'm thinking through it that that what we do matters that our lives matter our relationships matter and the world that we find ourselves embedded in matters. I think that's much more profound than how I understand the Trinity or whether I believe in a literal virgin birth, any number of doctrinal questions like that. Right, right, right. Yeah, and I find that very powerful. And it seems to me that it's, you know, this sort of, more of a nuanced approach to faith and thinking through these theological terms. I think if more churches did it, we wouldn't be seeing this sort of mass exodus of people leaving the church. I I sure like to think that I, I I think people are are hungry for this kind of kind of questioning, this kind of place to explore. And it's also hard to do because it's not what people are used to. Right. And it takes a while to begin to get your mind around, maybe this is what I should be seeking in church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and I think that the connection of faith with belief is really problematic because belief can lead to both good and evil. Of course. Uh, yeah. And you address that in, in the book, sort of this power of belief and bringing things into manifestation if you will yeah so uh, one of the films that you discussed along those lines and it was one that i'm familiar with i I didn't ask you what your favorite uh, horror movie is which i am curious to know but one of mine is the original nightmare on elm street yeah and you know, there was this whole series of sequels and whatnot, but then there was Wes Craven's new nightmare. Oh man. And I was really impressed with that when I first saw it. And it addresses this question of belief. So I was wondering if maybe you could discuss that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. This was, was kind of Wes Craven in the early nineties horror had in some ways kind of run dry. You know, the nightmare on Elm street series wasn't making the money that it used to. And Wes Craven, the writer director of the original one 
had had a series of movies that were maybe not very well received. So he kind of started to turn towards this this meta horror cinema almost, where, for example, he I think he's most well known for Scream, which really has a bunch of characters who know have watched all these horror movies and understand the rules, the the cliches that we all know. So it's a horror movie that critiques and moves within this realm of horror movies. But before that, he did this Wes Craven's New Nightmare, where there's a new Freddy movie being made. It's the, the idea is that these Freddy movies are all fictional, but then somehow the screenplays have tapped into this real actual evil that is able to be contained because people are telling the stories. And somehow Wes Craven, who plays himself in the movie, has learned that if he stops making Freddy movies, Freddy will then come out of the, the narrative and be unleashed into the world. It's, it's delightfully silly in some ways, but also there's, there's kind of this profundity buried underneath the silliness, which is one of the things I, I love that dichotomy in, in a lot of horror movies, that yeah. duality, yeah. yeah. So there's, there's this, this really complex interplay between the fictional worlds of the movie and our reality, and this idea that the fictions are a container for, for this evil. Mm. And if we don't tell the stories, they come out of the stories and come into our world. Yeah. So it's it almost implies that telling these stories, watching these movies is something that keeps evil at bay. That act of watching comes back to that question of looking away, I guess, in some yeah, ways. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was, you know, like I said, I was really impressed with that idea because I think he was also suggesting that this evil is sort of archetypal that freddie yeah, is tapping yes. into this archetypal power that is going to erupt into our everyday experience yeah. um, you know but i love that he played himself i loved that heather lungenkamp who played uh, nancy in the first and in the, in the third, first movie returns as heather lungenkamp yeah. yeah so now she's an actress in this new yeah. movie that they're making within west craven's yeah. nightmare it's so much fun yeah, for my yeah. money it's much better than scream but yeah, yeah, I, I agreed. And I just thought it was so clever the way that they subverted everything and yeah. reimagined the, the 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 nightmare on Elm Street series, you know. Yeah, and, and interrogated what it's really doing, this idea that it taps into some kind of archetype that you know, whether you want to look at that as a Jungian ar archetype or just something that has existed in our stories for millennia, horror movies often do that. They find ways to tap into those archetypes that however they got there are in our heads. Right. So that movie, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, kind of explores what that means that we have these archetypes and what it means that horror movies use them. Right. Yeah. And it, brings to mind as well these questions of again faith and belief and like i said you know that belief can lead to good or evil and there are ample examples of belief leading to real world horrors absolutely and that's something that i think we are struggling with right now and you know there's also this connection, you know, with faith and belief and doubt. And you write about doubt in, in the book. And I was thinking in terms of also certainty that often it is the certainty sort of buttressed by faith 
that can lead to all of these nasty real world things. Yeah. I, I love that phrase, certainty but, buttressed by faith. Yeah, it's yeah, good. Peter Enns has this fantastic book called The Sin of Certainty, where he's mm. kind of kind of looking at at how yeah, how how easy it is to err when you are certain about any of your religious beliefs. Yeah. And on a personal level, I always feel like, you know, I'm, I'm an associate professor of biblical studies. These things are often high above my pay grade, <laughs> whether there is what, what the realities are of the divine world. I have, have ideas and, and, and feelings and things that I believe to be true, but I've, I've got to know that they're all, what would you say? They're all penultimate. They're all preliminary almost, that I'm, I'm limited as to what I know. And it's healthy to keep that in mind. Yeah, for sure. Well, and there were one of the movies that you look at in terms of faith is The Exorcist. Yeah. And I, I, and I like that approach because I think that a lot of times people do look at The Exorcist as that battle of just good versus evil, you know, and it definitely did seem to be good propaganda for the Catholic Church oh, sure. uh, at the time. Sure. But I was wondering if you could say a few words about the role of faith in that film. Yeah. So as you, as you mentioned really, really clearly, there's this, this large battle of good versus evil there. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of the, the main parameters of the, the battle in the movie is God with the representatives of, of the priests versus this demonic force Pazuzu here. But to me, what's most interesting is how this is centered in the, the character of the, the exorcist, Father Karras, that we see as throughout the movie having, having a faith, faith crisis. You know, it begins with him talking about his, his struggle with, you know, he's been a, a psychiatrist, right? No, psychiatrist, yeah. And then also worked through the priesthood and how so we see science and faith wrestling with each other. And then we see him really struggling with how, to, how does he put his faith into to practice? He gets asked for, for money by somebody in the subway who says, look, I was an altar boy. And he just kind of turns his back on the guy. Later on, the demon throws those words back at Father Karst mm -hmm. as you know, a, a mocking way to say, you are not able to live up to your faith. Mm. So the, the real resolution of the film is finally Father Karst being able to internalize what are the, what is the crux, the, the meaning, the most powerful single element of my faith. And he settles on self-sacrifice. So he's able to then pull the, pull the demon out of young Reagan into himself and through that act of self-sacrifice, free the people around him from this presence. And I'm, I, I, I try to make a nod in the book to the problematic elements of that. Um, Carol Clover and her, her really famous book in the 90s, one of the ones that started me on horror scholarship called Men, Women, and Chainsaws. Mm -hmm. She points out how frequently exorcism movies have uh, a struggle, a uh, character struggle within a male protagonist that with the arena being a young woman's body. The chapter's called Her Body Himself. Wow. And I, that, that plays up really strongly in The Exorcist, that, that poor Reagan here is, is literally the one feeling the presence of this demon, but it's really about this, this priest struggling with his faith. Yeah. So I think we can acknowledge that as problematic and still find some really profound meaning out of it. I mean, if you are a fan of horror, you have to be able to acknowledge problematic elements and then sure. still take good things from them because right, right, there are right. very few horror movies that are not problematic in some way or another. 
Right, right, for sure. And also with some of the horror writers, I imagine at some point Lovecraft will come up and uh, in terms of the cosmic horror. And... Problematic doesn't quite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. Yes. yeah, I gave, I have this habit of at Christmas, I, my brother's got three kids and I always give books and they don't read. I think one of them reads them, but the other ones don't. And, and I'm getting ready. The oldest one just turned 21 and I'm just getting ready to abandon, you know, trying to push the books. Yeah. But at Christmas, I gave him a graphic novel of a Lovecraft story. Okay. And his partner is African-American and the look of horror on his face. He's like, you gave him HP Lovecraft. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Yep. Yep. I'm trying to get him to read. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I understand both points of view. And then that the the novel and the new HBO series Lovecraft Country really right. tries to interrogate that and and unravel. Cause with I, I think I mentioned that in, in Lurking Under the Surface yeah. some, that with Lovecraft, it's not just a question of some outdated and unfortunate language. Right. It's deeper than that. His whole worldview is rooted in right. racial hierarchy and, and cosmic horror for Lovecraft is the idea that maybe white men aren't at the top of the totem pole. And there's no right. idea more horrifying for Lovecraft than that. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, Lovecraft Country was brilliant in the way that it subverted all of that. And yeah, we see the same thing in the films of Jordan Peele. Um, and I know <laughs> you write about those too. Yeah. And we may get to that, but I wanted to ask in terms of faith and belief and, you know, the exorcist seems to be a, in a weird way, positive message about faith. I, I think very much so. Yeah. I read a quote once from the author, William Peter Blatty, that he said he's always thought of the, the exorcist as a, a faith tract that was, or a religious tract that was disguised as a horror movie. Hmm. Really for him, the religious message was primary. Yeah. Well, I think that that happens a lot. And I've noticed not even in horror movies, but, you know, I also really enjoy watching paranormal series, you know, like hauntings and things like that. Yeah. And there was one series, I forget which one it was, but it became very, very clear to me that this is really just kind of catholic propaganda because every <laughs> single time the priest came in as the saving figure because someone had deviated somehow from their faith <laughs> and unleashed all these demonic forces and and literally it would end often with people holding their bibles and whatnot and I was like, yeah, I don't know how true any of this is <laughs> in this sense. I, I think the Conjuring universe is about one step away yeah. from that. Well, yeah, but that's based on the life of Ed and Lorraine Warren. And they based. were, yeah, <laughs> but they were so guilty of that. I mean, yeah. they were deeply, Very deeply much. Catholic. And, and I know this is a bit of a deviation from, from your work, but I know that in some paranormal circles they have been kind of rejecting the warrens because it's like you know you can't say that everything is a demon that things can't just be couched in <laughs> christian terminology that you know yeah let's experience you know explore these things and maybe people are interpreting things through their under the the understanding of their face but 
it's you know they were problematic in that sense at some point your lens becomes so strong that you kind of shoehorn everything yeah. into your preconceived yeah. ideas yeah for sure but the other i don't know you didn't write about this and i and i suspect that it's because it came out after you had written the book i suspect you did watch this though the netflix series of midnight mass yes yeah and yeah too too late for the book unfortunately because that fantastic yeah. series yeah but it seemed to address sort of this these issues that we're talking about in terms of the horror of faith but it also shows the good aspects of faith it, it really does the the conclusion of that series is so deeply moving but yeah a lot of it is the the horror of misidentifying your object of worship they mistook the demonic for god right this this entire island mm -hmm. yeah yeah and it also i think speaks to the idea of you talk about sacred space and how sometimes the horror is coming from the pulpit itself. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's another, another example of what you've talked about, about how faith can be used for, for good or evil. Mm -hmm. So I, I think when, when faith becomes weaponized to beat up on people, yeah. that is not a good use of religion. Right, right, right. Yeah, it what just came to mind was I forget which movie it was. I think it was a it was a vampire movie where someone kind of held the cross up in front of the vampire and it had no effect. And the the vampire is like, you have to have faith. You can't just show the cross. Um, and I love how the vampire knows that. <laughs> right, right, right. But it also then brings to mind a scene of Buffy where Xander holds up the cross and then kind of shakes it. <laughs> like, is this thing working? <laughs> <laughs> like it's a flashlight or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you also noted, and I like this, I that because the horror sometimes comes from the pulpit, and we see this manifesting with people, you know, with anti-semitism and anti-lgbtq and anti-female messages that this is something that i think you said that horror movies have become increasingly spiritual but not religious precisely <laughs> because the authority figures are the monsters in many ways oh, I, I think we can see in the in the exorcist that it really is the the authorized representatives of the Catholic Church, who are the the cowboys riding into town to save the day, so right, to speak. Right, right. But as we as we move more and more, and you can track this with with Pew Research studies that demonstrate our trust in institutions is declining. That more and more, even a film series like The Conjuring that I, I we mentioned briefly earlier, that is in some ways so Catholic. But what's What's Catholic is its worldview. They also right. think the hierarchy of the church is really ineffective. There's a, a joke at the end of the first movie that Ed and Lorraine are trying to get authorization to do this, perform this exorcism, and they can't get it. And finally, after they've risked their lives and have driven out the demon, then they get a message from the church. Oh, you can perform the exorcism. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. I Curious, I wonder what the if there's a historical basis for that, because I know that they were doing these things and then they were outside of the church, but deeply embedded in the church. Yeah. So, yeah. So 
I also wanted to talk to you about a movie. And uh, there's two of them that you write together, uh, write about together. And this is in the chapter about They're Us. And so there, it's another Wes Craven movie, The Hills Have Eyes. But you also address the film The Witch by the director Robert Eggers. And I believe that was his first film. It was, yeah. Which kind of was yeah. And I was hoping to rewatch that before speaking with you. It had been streaming somewhere and then it's gone. So instead I decided to rent The Lighthouse after reading your book, also directed by Robert Eggers. But The Witch is something that has stayed with me for a very long while now for a number of reasons. Yeah. And I think the question that you're asking in that chapter is where is the monstrous located? I, I think that's a... a succinct way of putting that, that question. The Witch was a movie that really stayed with me too. Mm-hmm. After I, I saw it, I saw this call for, for papers for an edited volume called Make America Hate Again, Trump Error <laughs> Horror and the, the Politics of Fear. So I started looking at, was, was thinking about the family in The Witch and how they were convinced that they were, were under, under attack from the outside. So they had to, to hunker in, keep themselves close. They had to basically build walls around themselves. Mm. And that doesn't work when we when we when we are feel ourselves under external threat that's usually a response to a lack of internal cohesion hmm. so when we think we're being invaded by other people that's usually because we're afraid of something that's going on in our own community and i think the witch really demonstrates that so i wrote this article and then i still felt like man this movie is still not leaving me alone Often the writing of an article or a chapter for me is, is kind of like an exorcism that I can, can get rid of it after I've written it. But the witch stayed around with me. So I put in a pitch to a series called The Devil's Advocates that does these shortish handbooks on, the, on individual horror movies and managed to, to get a contract to write about this book from the perspective of, of history of religion, from biblical studies, from all the, the things that I, I hope to, to know fairly well. Yeah. Because the the Puritan faith is so deeply embedded in that movie. Mm-hmm. This family lives their lives terrified of not being able to live up to the obligations of their faith. Mm-hmm. And I think as we watch through the movie more and learn more about the characters, we really realize that this is all emanating from the father, that the other characters are just trying to be good family members and live up to what their patriarch expects. But by the end of the movie, we're really realizing that, as you say, the real monster is is this patriarchal worldview that limits possibilities, that doesn't let people be people. (laughs) It doesn't acknowledge them for the complexities of who they are and what their their desires for their lives and for their relationships with each other are. Yeah. Yeah, and I couldn't imagine... I mean, I guess I can't imagine because I think we all do this in some aspects, but within this Puritan context of never feeling like you're pure enough, yeah, you know, I, I just can't imagine the constant anxiety that, that, you know, that would be, that's a fresh hell, <laughs> I yeah, think, yeah. To, to live in that and, sort of mindset. That movie does such a fantastic job of of piling on the weight of that for the viewers. Yeah, yeah, and it's such a subtle film. Yeah, and I think that's part of the beauty of it. I it, everything I've seen by him, I've not seen The Northman yet, but I did just watch The Lighthouse. But both of those are very subtle movies. Yeah, you know, The Witch and and, and The Lighthouse. Let's 
briefly then talk about this connection with the hills have eyes because it yeah. also addresses the family and mm -hmm. patriarchy and so how does it play out in that film yeah that's it's a it's an interesting interesting film that is a, again deeply problematic it's an early 70s film by Wes Craven I get mid 70s maybe uh, yeah anyway one of the shifts we were seeing in the late 60s and the early 70s in earlier horror movies the family was what protected you from the monster that was outside so Dracula came in to get you and the family would circle the wagons and shove the evil back to wherever it came from you know, in Frankenstein, they chase the monster back out of town. But starting in the 60s and 70s, often people like locate this, the beginning of this in Psycho, uh, right mm -hmm. in 1960. We start to see that the family itself becomes the source of the monstrous. Mm. When the hills have eyes, it's, it's a, the setup is fairly generic. There's a family on a road trip. They break down the desert and are assaulted by this other family that lives in the, the hills. We get the sense they're the product of nuclear radiation from the, the Nevada desert. But what's really interesting is the mirroring in these two families. And I, I think what Wes Craven, again, he, he keeps coming up in our conversation here, huh? What he's trying to do in this movie is is demonstrate that we, we have this, this terrifying family from the hills, but they're really very similar to the suburban family that we see. They are both locuses of patriarchal control, and that patriarchal control is expressed through violence. We see all these subtle hints of how the violence is inflicted or threatened on members of the family and then projected outward onto other people. So by the end of the movie, the suburban family has become as violent as this family from the hills, and at least I'm left with this queasy feeling of okay, the suburban family fought off the attackers, but I do not feel good about this. <laughs> I'm not rooting for anybody by the end. Right. There are very few characters who are sympathetic. And usually it's like one from each side of the each, each family. Mostly you just feel like they are horrible centers of oppression and violence. Yeah. Yeah. And something you, you used the word I noticed in the chapter, but you didn't really kind of go dig into it that much and i wanted to ask you about this because both of those films are set in the wilderness yes and i think the wilderness feeds into these notions of horror in ways my understanding especially you know if we look at like the puritan ideas but you know the well even more than just the puritan but from a biblical perspective it was that's where we were banished yeah you know that's what jerusalem is going to be destroyed to you know it's going to be reduced to a haunt for jackals and satyrs at one point the prophet isaiah right. says something something like that yeah. so so yeah there there's this kind of one of the things i think a lot of horror movies interrogate is this idea that we we have that our communities are what keep us safe Right. And sometimes we even limit that to, you know, the walls we live in, our, our physical homes are what keeps us safe. That The right. world around is a scary, scary place, you know, maybe filled with American carnage or what have you. Mm -hmm. But we are safe within our own communities. So the wilderness then, when people are outside of those communities, that becomes one place that horror movies can explore. Well, what happens when we don't have that safetyness? What happens to Job when he is outside of the 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 protective confines of his home the satan in in the book of job talks about job's life in the same way that he's under this protective guard from god what happens if you take that away 
It happens right. if you pull down the fence, pull down the walls, and Satan doesn't literally say throw Job into the wilderness, but I think that's the, the effect of it. Yeah. Well, and it's also interesting in terms of Job that, you know, wilderness, I think we have a tendency not just in, you know, not from a biblical perspective, but we think of wilderness as, you know, untouched and nature, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's really interesting that at the end of Job, God appears as the whirlwind, as a mm -hmm. natural yeah. force that is an uncontrollable force similar to the wild. I think. And then so much of God's speech at the end is about the wild. Right. And I think it's also interesting in the biblical text that the wilderness is the place that we're banished to. It's the places our cities are reduced to. Mm -hmm. It's also the place where the people are closest to God. Right. God right. leads them through the wilderness and the mountain is where, where God appears. Yeah. 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 And it's fortunate that we seem to have started following that path, uh, the United States after the Puritans. But I think that for the Puritans, the wilderness was a very dark and scary place, Yeah, you know, something that had to be conquered. And it seems to mirror that drive to conquer themselves, I think. Yes. Good description. Yeah. And it also brings to mind this idea of, you know, you're talking about the, the safety of communities. To go back to midnight mass for a moment, what happens mm -hmm. when it's within the community itself that yeah. the the horror emerges? When the whole community goes wrong, there is yeah. there's little left in safety. Yeah. But that that series does some really interesting things with that in terms of how often they gather in the sanctuary, how right, right. how much takes place in that meeting hall. They they have a really defined sense of location in the movie. Yeah. yeah. And the the evil is first encountered in the wilderness. In the wilderness, yep. Yeah. And is brought into the community. Yeah. 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 Fascinating. Well, and it brings up these ideas, this idea of their us, that's the other. And the other is always such a potent theme. I'll just call it a theme. Sure. And you can't get much other than God, can you? Yes. That's, <laughs> I think that's Derrida who referred to God as the holy other. Completely right. Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. Right. And that will bring us back to this idea of the fear of God that we had talked about earlier. And the fear of God is, if I'm right, it's because God is so completely other. Yeah, I think, I, I think in essence, that's really what it is. There's, there's part of it, the fear of God that emanates from, from the, the feeling overwhelmed physically, that God really does have complete control over, over our bodies and what can happen to us. And as we see from the Old Testament, God will definitely push the smite button when it's needed. And that in itself is terrifying. But I think on a deeper level, you really hit on it that, that God is completely radically other from us, that we're not able to, what would you say, encompass Really, we can experience God in, in part, but we really can't conceptualize God completely or else it would be God, of course. Right. And, and only, terrifying. yeah, and only a few people in the biblical text are allowed to face God. Yeah. You know, you give a couple of examples of people not quite prepared for this or wanting <laughs> yeah. to face God or, you know, touch the Ark of the Covenant or something. And yeah. um, there's disastrous consequences to that. 
And it's fascinating if you if you follow the the trends of contemporary biblical scholarship and really see different different authors within like the Pentateuch, for example, mm-hmm. you'd see in the Deuteronomistic tradition, God is able to meet Moses face to face. But in the in other traditions, the best Moses asks to see God, and God says, "No, nobody can see my face and live." Here, what I'll do is I'll run by you and I'll tell you when you can look, and you can see my backside. Right. <laughs> you can see right. my blood as I run by the yeah. divine rear end yeah. that the most holy person that we have in our biblical text can just see God fleeting from behind. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and that that's also part of the Jewish mystical tradition of the Merkabah mysticism yeah. is that you can't see God. You can, you can describe God's throne, you know, mm-hmm. you can desca- describe the, the, the hem of God's garment, but yeah. that's about the extent of it. You cannot you see God. Yeah. And, and so this brings up a couple of things and I am being mindful of time. I know that you have a meeting here shortly, but it brings up the idea of the cosmic horror in a sense, which I think we've touched about with, you know, HP Lovecraft, because that is, you know, the experience of a couple of things with these powers that are so beyond the human imagination that if you encounter them, you go mad, (laughs) but also addresses the human experience in this vast, infinite universe. Yeah. And Lovecraft stories are interesting because so often there's a protagonist who isn't really in physical danger. Right. It's not like they're running from somebody with a knife or a monster who's trying to eat them. They're merely either, you know, sometimes they're not even witnessing, they're just reading through documents of of other scholars who have explored this idea, but they learn something about the immensity of the cosmos outside of human experience, realize how deeply insignificant we are, and that word insignificant almost doesn't even convey what they learn, and recognize that the only reason we exist is because these creatures, these gods, these whatever beings you want to call them, that they don't notice us because we're too far beneath them. Mm-hmm. That if they noticed us and wanted to wipe us out, they would, but they don't care enough to. <laughs> right, right, right. And But it's this quest, you know, this, this idea of this meaninglessness and whatnot. It, it seems to me that it's the quest for God is the counter to that. Yeah. And this desire to want to have that experience to find God. And Absolutely. So I, I come back again to the book of Job as one of my one of my favorite ruminations on this in the Bible. So after everything goes wrong for Job, Job spends most of the book complaining about God and God's justice and demanding to know why all this is happening to him and demanding an audience with God. Job's friends give him all of the traditional responses. Well, you must have done something wrong. Well, there will be justice if you're just patient. All of the responses that we we know from from tradition, and Job says, no, those don't match my experience. When God finally shows up at the end, God just chews Job up one side and down the other. Put up your loins like a man. Declare to me, where were you when creation happened? It's It's a... I mean, God really puts Job in his place. But then after this, we don't know if he says this to Job or just to the friends. God says to the friends, I'm angry with you because you have not spoken rightly of me as Mm. did my servant Job. Mm. So somehow we're to understand that even though God doesn't say you got anything right, God, it seems to me that God is saying, you have no idea. Everything that you have said is wrong. But somehow in that effort to figure it out, 
Job has spoken rightly. Mm. Whereas the friends relying on cliches, relying on this inherited wisdom have not. So what I take from that is that this struggle to understand in itself is meaningful. The answer may be that we as humans are meaningless, maybe, but the struggle itself is meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. And that really beautiful. Yeah, yeah, I do too. Book of Job is one of my favorite books in the in all of the Bible. And, and I teach it. It's yeah, it's an interesting one. I have my approach, but I like how you know, with any good text and I think the Bible is like this, you can just keep digging and digging Absolutely. and finding things of value in there. Yeah. Yeah. So, I do want before we run out of time in terms of this fear of God, and God is the other address this other film by Robert Eggers, the lighthouse. Yeah. I, I, it'd been on my list to watch. And then after reading your book, well, actually while reading your book, I knew you were going to address it. I'm like, okay, I have to watch this one before <laughs> I found it a little baffling. And I told you before we started recording this, that the work that it reminded me of most was David Lynch's Eraserhead. It's also deeply baffling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Why well, I, I can get Lynch pretty well, I think, if anyone can get Lynch. But, and it wasn't that it was surrealistic. I guess it has some of that in there. But for me, it was the sounds because there's this the 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 foghorn constant foghorn and the mm-hmm. sound of the machinery and you even note that there's not much in the way of musical score in, in the film but you interpret it as this encounter as the fear of god and this encounter of the divine yeah for me the how eggers has talked about it in terms of connections with greek myths he's discussed it in terms of the prometheus myth which i think is certainly there but I think it's also a rich enough text that it's it bears the weight of some biblical resonances as well. So the, the setup is, is a, a veteran lighthouse keeper, Willem Dafoe's Thomas, and then a new apprentice, Ephraim. Thomas keeps the lighthouse and is the only one who goes up to the light. He keeps Ephraim away from that. He gives him all these menial tasks to do and won't let him near the light. So I really see Thomas Willem Dafoe as the the high priest Mm. who is guarding this sacred space, who performs the rituals, who understands how dangerous it is if you approach it incorrectly. But Ephraim is drawn to it. He he becomes obsessed with getting up to the, the light, up to the top of the lighthouse. And it doesn't, I don't think it's a spoiler to say it doesn't end well for him. (laughs) You see it coming all through the movie. But this idea that he finally gets to the light and it destroys him. That we are, so we we see him experiencing too much of God, experiencing the divine too directly in a way that he, he can't handle, he can't process. And that's something that is found not just in the biblical text, but it also brings to mind, you know, you mentioned Greek myth, that we mere mortals cannot handle the sight of the divine. Yeah. And it it seems to me that that's something that's deeply embedded in our thinking as humans. Yeah. That there are are things above us that we do best to keep our distance from. Mm. Yeah. But yet... 
we have a very difficult time looking away from them, don't we? We're all so drawn <laughs> yeah, our curiosity, our curiosity. <laughs> so there are a lot of other aspects of your work that I would love to talk to you about, but I know that we're running out of time here and I don't want to keep you, but I do want to ask what's next for you. What are you going to be working on next? So I've got a couple of projects that are in queue right now, two books that I'm editing, one that's called Religion and Horror Comics. And then I'm also working to co-edit with John Moorhead, the Oxford Handbook of Biblical Monsters. Uh that tries to, some of the, the scholars are more traditional historical critical scholars, and then some are, are postmodern scholars. So it's kind of runs the gamut of, of old school source criticism to new kinds of, of monster theory, yeah. but covers all of the monstrous text in the, the Bible. And then things like, you know, the monstrosity of the crucifixion, the way that, that the Jews are monstrous characters in the gospel of John, for example, right. things like that. So I'm excited about that. And I'm writing something for Oxford University Press that's called Concerning Dust and Ashes, Transcendent Terror in the Hebrew Bible. So I'm looking at, it will be a more academic monograph, but I'm looking at a lot of the questions you and I just talked about here. You know, what, what we frequently think that experiencing God should be joy. And the right. Hebrew Bible certainly, certainly expresses that. But there are also times where that encounter is terror. Right. So I'm looking at, at, what causes that terror? And then what do the characters learn from it? Mm. Yeah. And you do address the comics a little bit in the book. You have this chapter on fairness. Uh, yeah. Uh, Mention like creep show and tales from the crypt. And that is another aspect of horror and where we love to see people get their just desserts. <laughs> we do, we do. And I try to unpack why theologically that is, that, yeah. that there's something in us that says, well, this, this tells us that the world is ultimately fair. Right, right. And that that's comforting. Yeah, um, yeah. Sometimes it doesn't seem that way. Right, right. Yeah, and then that leads you to a discussion on social justice, which I think is yeah. incredibly important. Oh, um, thank you. And well, and, you know, it boggles my mind. I remember the he used to be on Fox News. Glenn Beck once told his listeners or his viewers that if your church was preaching social justice to leave. And that's <laughs> monstrous to me. <laughs> it's, a, it's certainly a different idea of church than I have. Yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's a different idea of church and what's in the Bible. That that would be what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's it's pretty hard to read the Bible, to read the Gospels, to read much in the Bible at all without seeing how we relate to each other, without seeing how we organize our societies as being so crucial. Right. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And so I, you know, I highly recommend your book to anyone religious, uh, anyone interested in religious studies and theology, and of course, horror. It is coming out in October. Is that correct? That's correct. October 4th, just in okay. time for Halloween. All right. Perfect. And it's available for pre-order now, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's up on all the websites, uh, Broadleaf's okay. site okay. and all the independent ones as well as the, the big names. Okay. I'll put links for it in the show notes and video description. The final question is where can people go to find out more about you and your work? So I try to keep an active Twitter presence, BR Grafius. 
I've also got an author website, brandongrafius.com. You can check out my, there's also a lot of stuff about me on, on my seminary's website, etseminary.edu. So yeah, you can always, always reach out to me through those, those places. I love to engage with people who are reading the work or just interested about what's happening in these kind of areas. Okay, wonderful. Well, I'll put the uh, Twitter and your author's website uh, yeah, also in the show notes. Thank you. So, you know, again, I could talk to you for quite a bit more time, but I do appreciate the time that you spent with me this morning. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Well, Nick, thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed it too. A lot of neat ideas to bounce around and a lot yeah. of things that get me thinking. Yeah, thank yeah, you. yeah. Yeah, well, it's. It, I need to start watching more scary movies, I think. <laughs> <laughs> kind of go back to them. It's just that gore issue. I just can't get around the gore. I, I understand. Yeah, especially since I had kids, my gore tolerance has has gone down. Yeah, well, you know, there are still older gory movies that I still love. I love the Evil Dead movies. You know, if you grew up just, with them as a kid, they're kind yeah. of like grandfather Dan. Yeah, right? yeah. But I noticed this aspect of movies like I... I remember I never watched it and I won't ever watch it, but I remember seeing the trailer for the human centipede. Mm -hmm. yeah, and I felt that that was mean. so degrading to humans yeah. that I'm like, no, I, I can't know. I, I have a pretty low tolerance for movies that, that focus on cruelty without having yeah. something, something really important or insightful to say about cruelty. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because you do mention, I think, a film series, the hostile films that yeah. kind of do that a little bit. Yeah. And, and they're not great movies there. And I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't recommend them necessarily, but they at least have some interesting insights and right. a few things to talk about. Yeah. yeah but yeah, yeah not, my, not my favorite stuff either. I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, before I let you go, I, I forgot to ask you, what is your favorite? Do you have a favorite horror movie? I, I, you know, it, it depends on the day. The Witch is one of them. I'd put the original Shining up there. In the book, I talk about the one that maybe has scared me the most as an adult as being Sinister. Oh, yeah. Um, Scott Derrickson's new movie is pretty fantastic, too. The yeah. Black Phone. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'll look into that one. I, I've yeah. seen the... Uh, uh, that also has Ethan Hawke in it, it doesn't it? It does, yeah. But he is scary. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that one. yeah, yeah, which is kind of fun. Yeah. So, all right. Well, I know that you have to go, so I won't keep you any longer. So, again, Brandon, thank you so much for your time. I really oh, Nick, appreciate it. Thank you this. so much. I really enjoyed the conversation and uh, appreciate it. Thank you. All right. All right. Well, thank you. And that's a wrap on episode 51 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you view this on Spotify. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second and your five-star ratings really do help, especially if you listen on Apple. If you have a minute to spare, please consider posting a short but positive review and please subscribe. Also, if you think a friend, family member, or coworker even might like this podcast, please share it with them and please feel free to share on social media as well. Right now, that is one of the best ways to help me with the podcast. I really do need to grow the audience. I also post videos of the podcast on YouTube, and you can find them at youtube.com slash rebelspiritradio. I have a PayPal link set up if you would like to make a one-time donation, and yes, you can still be the first person to do so. And if you do, I will be sure to give you a shout out, and you will have my undying gratitude. 
You can find the link for that in the show notes or the video description. I'm also going to be launching a Patreon within the next few months, so stay tuned for that. I have a lot of plans for Rebel Spirit Beyond the Rebel Spirit radio podcast. I still want to make more video content for the YouTube channel, and I'm planning some live stream episodes. The first will be with returning guest, Dr. Sharon Kogan, where she will offer a Jungian analysis interpretation of dreams for participants. We're still working on scheduling this, but it will likely be near the end of October. So be sure to follow Rebel Spirit Radio on Facebook and or sign up for the newsletter at rebelspiritradio.com. That way you will be informed of all future live events and the launch of the Patreon. Implementing all of this is going to take time, work, and resources, so anything you can do to help will be greatly appreciated. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.